Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the moral theology of John Paul II, especially in its connection to um, marriage and the family. As I'm sure many of you have probably heard about in the news, there's been some recent changes and shakeup uh, at the um, uh, the centers or institutes called the John Paul II uh, Centers or Institutes for Marriage and the Family. Um, this was, you know, given rise to a good bit of conversation and debate about those changes. We're not going to directly address that uh, that controversy, but rather just talk about uh, sort of uh, John Paul II's achievements and um, essential insights in the area of moral theology in connection to um marriage and the family, and also talk a little bit about maybe just the place of moral theology in um, uh, our thoughts and conversations about uh, marriage and family. Uh, so uh, in order to do that, I'm joined today uh, by my colleague, Dr. Richard Bulzakelli, um, who's a, an expert on the thought of John Paul II. I think that's fair to say. Would you say, Rich? Yeah, I suppose technically I would be yeah. considered. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Dr. Kelly is being modest. He's uh, uh, he wrote his dissertation on John Paul II and uh, more um, uh, in Mariology. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. But there was a lot of emphasis in moral theology in that work, and and Dr. Kelly has written extensively and presented extensively on moral theology and John Paul II um, in both various academic publications and academic conferences. Um, so, Rich, you know, when you're thinking about John Paul II and marriage and the family, could you just maybe share a little bit of your background and interest in John Paul II and his moral theology, and then maybe we can go from there? Right. So I really began to study John Paul II um, on his own terms, right, mm -hmm. when um, when I was in, doing my doctoral work okay. uh, at the International Marian Research Institute. And um, the uh, so I... It, my study of John Paul II kind of occasioned a shift in my own emphasis. You know, prior to that, I had been um, strongly Thomistic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I began to um, be attracted to personalist thought. And, okay. I, and I, you know, I perceived um, where some of those differences lie. Um, and I was especially attracted to John Paul II because uh, he had a similar pedigree to mine. Uh, in his own background, um, and then sort of undertook that transition in his own uh, in his own thinking, mm -hmm. and um, and so I uh, what I found right in John Paul II was that his emphasis was very strongly on the importance of um, of responsibility right in human action, and and this is. Uh, this is an aspect of his thinking that, of course, he shares with the great medieval thinkers. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, is at the top of his list, right, in terms of authorities that he would sure. that he would cite there. Um, but the way he kind of turns his analysis in a phenomenological way onto um, human action is very interesting because you know what he's doing is he's responding to um, he's responding to Immanuel Kant, mm -hmm. right? So he enters in on this project uh, of approaching 
of approaching morality phenomenologically, right? And what he's trying to do is to avoid Kant's categorical imperative, right? What what the uh, what the phenomenological thinkers described as formalism. So his major interlocutor here is the German philosopher Max Scheler, who had made such an attempt in a gigantic book, uh, which is often just called by a short title, Formalism, right? It's, its full title is Formalism and, and uh, Non-Formal uh, Ethics of Values, right? Okay. And, um, and so what he's trying to do, right, is to, to recognize the problem that Kant is actually sort of dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, given certain questions in philosophy that have, that have arisen, uh, but avoiding the problem of putting everything into the mind and uh, and and leaving room right for for some real thing uh, which is moral action right that involves not just some sort of strange um, abstract calculus uh-huh. uh, right but but actually matches our lived experience of morality much more closely um, Voitiwa didn't think that Shaler succeeded in that uh, in that effort. Just, just to be clear for maybe our, our listeners here, Kant would want to reject the idea that morality has anything to do with lived experience. Uh, that's right. In fact, lived right. experience often uh, in Kant's thinking appears to undermine. That's right. Uh, right. What's really morally good. So the classic example, right, that's given is visiting your grandfather in the hospital or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you go to visit grandpa in the hospital because you really want to see grandpa one more time before he dies? Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, there are maybe things you want to say to him or, sure. uh, yeah. right, you just don't want. So this dimension, right, of um, the moral experience of going to visit your grandfather in the hospital, uh, I think almost every human being on Earth, right, understands yeah. that Most- particular that particular sure. uh, issue, right? And uh-huh. we think this is a sign that you're actually a, a good person, uh-huh. right? That that uh-huh. you care about your 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 grandfather's um, life is important to you, right? Sure. Personally. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kant doesn't see it that way, right? For him, uh-huh. that vitiates the action. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go visit your grandfather simply because it's your duty to do so. Right. And to the extent that anything else enters into your intentionality, mm-hmm. uh, it's less morally good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, from my my reading of Kant, you know, that that desire to see your grandfather is morally indifferent in itself. Uh-huh. And if that's your primary motive, then it's not a moral action, right? Your primary motive um, really needs to be, as you said, the duty. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I think it's interesting there just to, as an aside, you know, because there are mm-hmm. other forms of kind of deontology, like if you're thinking through contemporary categories, you know, uh, contemporary categories of normative ethics, right, you know, kind of break down into deontological and consequential. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably an impoverished division, but nevertheless, that's kind of the working division in, in contemporary ethics. And, uh, you know, on that side, you know, on the deontological side, side, sides, you know, the real issue is whether or not anything is right or wrong in itself. That's the division, dividing issue between deontology right. and consequentialism, right? Yeah. Um, there are versions of duty-based ethics or duty-oriented ethics, right? Like stoic versions, 
um, natural law versions, you know, that it involved the imposition of duties um, that nevertheless don't make those those Kantian moves about ignoring lived experience, obviously. Right. So this is actually this is where this is where John Paul II comes in, right, to the <laughs> story, because uh, according to John Paul II, and I, I actually don't I'm not 100 percent sure that I agree that he he was right here, but according to him, Shaler does not recognize uh, any place of duty mm -hmm. at all, right? So he mm -hmm. he kind of pushes in exactly the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. um, and he says basically that, um, you know, where there's love, which he sees as the primary, uh, the primary sort of um, element of moral, uh, of moral thought, right? Where there's love, there is no duty, okay? Now he does actually, to be fair, right, say something like that but the question is whether he means it in the way that Wojtyla um, mm. John Paul II is interpreting him as meaning right. so um, Wojtyla said well I mean you have to have duty right sure. it's true Kant is right there is such a thing as duty there are times when we're simply obligated um, but I agree with Shaler right that um, that love is actually primary. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, to me, a fair question is what what really does Shaler mean when he says that there's no duty in love? Mm -hmm. I think what he actually means, right, is that where love is the primary uh, motive, right, where love is sort of the primary impetus of our actions, we we act willingly um, without sort of the constraint, right, that comes, that, that duty represents at times, right? So you can imagine that you do something under duty um, that you really don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. But Shaler is saying, no, um, you would kind of jump at the opportunity, right? You would, you would rise to the, uh, to the opportunity to do it, mm -hmm. Not because you had to, mm -hmm. right? But because out of love you were um, uh, you were simply moved to do it. Mm -hmm. Now this question, I think that that analysis sounds to me kind of good up to a point, right? From a Christian theological perspective, it falls into some difficulty when we consider something like the agony of the garden, in which Christ uh, prays, right, that the cup would pass from him. But if not, then the Father's will be done. Right. That that seems to me, right, to be a recognition of duty um, kind of binding him at a time when when um, love itself does not um, push him in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, we can probably get into some, some pretty, um, you know, deep analysis of of where love uh, is acting here, right? Mm -hmm. But just prima facie, uh, Shaler's Shaler's thesis seems to be challenged by that that uh, that episode in the garden. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean that's not um, probably exactly where I would I would the example I would go with, but I'd have to I'd have to think through it some. Um, we're talking not necessarily about charity here, but just kind of love in general. Um, 
Y- yes, I think so. Um, now that, that's so, a difficult uh, question. Yeah, I think if I think if I was to, to think about it in those terms, right? I mean, obviously, uh, love, you know, charity and love are connected, right? But if you're just talking about sort of love in general, yeah, seems to me that justice and duty grab onto something that's in addition to friendship um, and love. But yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's uh, there's there, you know, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of connections uh, there. And certainly, I mean, I think you want to say that rightly ordered love, right, is the, you know, source of right moral action. Um, I mean, you can find that in, in Augustine uh, as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of connections there. How does, uh, how does John Paul II's approach or engagement with Shaler on this point inform sort of his views about marriage and family and those sorts of things? Right. So, um, so for for both Shaler and Wojtyla, uh, there's this idea of participation, okay, mm-hmm. where um, human beings act together with others for the sake of a common good, mm-hmm. uh, and they choose that good for as their own good, right? Mm-hmm precisely because it's a good held in common with all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, this is an interesting idea because it's not exactly the same, right, as as preferring the good of the whole um, at the expense of one's personal good. Rather, one's personal good is seen as bound up with the good of the whole. Right. So in fact, right, the fact that I'm not um, if I don't choose this common good, I'm diminishing myself morally. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that way, working against my own particular good. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So that's uh, that's good. Obviously, I have a a lot of interest in uh, topics about the common good. Yeah. Uh, One thing that often I think in those discussions gets lost is when you say personal good, personal good isn't the same as individual good. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I would certainly agree that the good of the person includes the common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that his personal good is going to involve shared goods. I think mm-hmm. that's the part of Thomas's doctrine on that. That may include the sacrifice of an individual good of the person. Yeah. Um, for example, the good that he can't share with others, like his personal reputation, fame, money, etc. Right. So, um, yeah, so I would say that's interesting because um, John Paul II doesn't, in my um, reading, right, speak much of individual goods. Mm-hmm. He speaks of personal goods. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I think he, um, to him, right, the idea of a, of a strictly individual good is a somewhat impoverished concept. The, yeah, maybe, but that, that, I mean, your health is a good. Right. And, and it's an individual good. Right. And you're so but the question, I suppose, is, I mean, yes, it's an individual good. Right. In the sense that um, uh, I'm healthy, whether or not. Right. My children are. Correct. Um, and the fact that I'm healthy doesn't cause my children to be healthy in any direct not way. Directly. Like, your health is not their health. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that Wojtyla would kind of 
you know, sort of look at that as it's a good, yes, right? Sure. But it's a good of an ontological rather than moral order. And um, the um, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if well, you're, I mean, doing, choosing, doing things yeah. to advance your moral, your individual health is good. That's right. Doing good. things to do. Right. Doing things to do. The, the actions that I undertake to to right. bring so about when, you're go, when you go jogging in the park by yourself to help your individual good, that's a morally good action for an individual good. Right. I mean, right. I, I mean, I, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. But. Um, so maybe I could make the point better if I focus on how John Paul II uh, brings these ideas into um, his discussion of the family, right? Mm -hmm. So the the idea here is he places his emphasis on the uh, on on gift, mm -hmm. right? For John Paul II, uh, the 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 marriage relationship is based upon friendship, right? Right. And it's a particularly um, exalted form of friendship, right? It's a total giving uh, of the self to the other without um, any reserve mm -hmm. and likewise a reception of the other person uh, with, without reserve. Right. OK. So the the emphasis is placed here entirely upon um, the communal, the communal good. Right. Mm -hmm. So that my in this context, the good of the individual is um, the good of the individual is it belongs to the whole, right? It's not to be conceptualized merely on its own terms because no longer does the person belong merely to himself. Sure. So while it's true, right, that my, my own health is incommunicable to my children, mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, right, this individual who's healthy is no longer merely an individual. Sure. Right? There, yeah, uh, when you when you put it that way, it makes me think about this, and we see if this uh, uh, works with your account. What, once I'm in the situation of being in a family, right? I've given yeah. myself in that way. Um, even though it's maybe technically true that my individual health or my health is an individual good, given the mutual gift of self involved in the family, I can't think of it only as something that has reference to me. Um, in this sense that if I were to lose my health now, right, that uh -huh. would have a negative impact, right, on my ability to give uh, to, you know, um, uh, you know, to give to a wife or to give to children. Does that, does that kind of fit with what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So if you so think about this in kind of practical terms, right? Mm -hmm. um, the I have been somewhat critical, actually, right, of some of the um, missionary activities undertaken by um, by married people with family with with children, right? Okay. Um, not because I'm critical of them going and missionizing, but because, <laughs> You're not against missionary work. But, but because <laughs> but because uh, they they place themselves in some of these cases, right? I'm not talking about all missionary work, but in some cases, right? They're going into hostile areas where martyrdom is a high likelihood. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, right, that the, um, the, the, the person who should be going into a situation like that is someone with, without other attachments, right? A person who, um, who doesn't have an obligation to remain alive and healthy for the sake of a wife and children, mm -hmm. uh, and who doesn't have to protect them from, uh, from other people, right? 
But often these missionaries will go into these hostile places, bringing their wives and children, right. subjecting all of them to these dangers. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that there they're make they're confusing, right? They're confusing their well, okay, this actually brings us back to the issue of duty, right? Mm-hmm. So here, the person has assumed a duty, right, with respect to wife and children. Right. Uh, and th- there's a confusion of his vocation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's kind of, he's so zealous for the gospel, which is great, right? Sure. But in his zeal for the gospel, he doesn't care sufficiently for this good of his personal health, right? His yeah, personal yeah. well-being, which no longer belongs to him alone. Sure. Uh, and often, right, he brings his wife and kids with him, jeopardizing their uh, health and well-being. Right. Yeah, that's, a good, that's an interesting example. I think that's kind of uh, earlier when we were talking about love and duties. Um, I, I was kind of, I think that, that that kind of illustrates a little bit also kind of just the, my, a little bit my own thoughts about love and duties. Like love, can be expressed in many, many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something very specific about duties, you know, uh, yeah. uh, that, you know, you'd want to say, well, yes, of course, preaching, you know, uh, sharing the gospel with people who don't, uh, who are unaware of it, you know, um, kind of missionary, evangelical work of that type, evangelistic work of that type, uh, is uh, an act of love, and a high act of love of God, right? Um it's one that might not actually be open to you, <laughs> right? Right, right? Given your circumstances and your particular duties, uh, right? Right. As a as a husband, so, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, um, you know, clearly, I think one of the the areas where John Paul II has, you know, his legacy has had probably the greatest impact, or the longest term sort of um, inspiration for people, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. is connected to these kinds of ideas of of gift, right, um, and uh, the uh, ideas of gift within marriage and the family. Um, so could you say, uh, and also, of course, theology of the body, a lot of people right. are very deeply uh, impacted by that um, approach. Um, could you say a little bit more about maybe how uh, this idea of gift and participation and not being your own is mm-hmm. tied into specifically maybe marriage and sexuality? Right. So the theology of the body is bound up with this idea, right, because it's a phenomenology of the um, structure, the objective structure, right, of the male-female morphology and how this um, how this kind of evinces, right, our um, uh, our own. How can I put this? The orientation of the person. So this is this is actually totally politically incorrect right but john paul ii is completely convinced that there are male and female persons and that we um so in other words male and female is not merely accidental mm-hmm. right to us but that um when god makes human beings he makes some as male human beings and others as female human beings and that this is kind of a quality of um this is kind of a, a personal quality right you're it, for god to make ben smith he has to make he has to make ben smith male and um and the body reflects this right and so um the whole dynamic of gift uh for which we're created right is expressed in our morphology right so that's part of where the theology of the body comes from mm-hmm. um but 
going further, right, John Paul II is, he places a strong emphasis on the way human action um, confirms the moral quality or the moral character of a person, right? Mm -hmm. so the moral quality of the acts that we perform form, right? They sort of constitute the moral character of the person who performs them. Okay. They express it, they confess it, right? They solidify it. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is, so this is why there's an interesting element of John Paul II in which he's very strong about, um, in, in his directives for confession of sin, right? Okay. That, that every sin that is, um, performed must be individually, um, identified and repented of. Okay? Interesting. It's interesting, and it sounds like really, really burdensome, right? Because people often, you know, they forget their sins after a sure. while. Right. Um, but, um, you know, but, yeah. but leaving that particular problem aside, the idea, right, is that the idea is that the sin, performing the sin, right, is a kind of uh, assigning of my own personal allegiances, mm -hmm. right? So... To leave a sin unconfessed, right. unrepented of, right, um, is to sort of remain aligned to it, right? Until I reverse that, right, right. see what I mean? Yeah, so I have yeah. to actually, um, I have to actually step back in each particular instance, right, from mm -hmm. uh, the sinful move that I made. Mm -hmm. um, now, in uh, in marriage and family, right, John Paul II really sees marriage and family not merely as a state, not merely as a condition, right, uh, but as an arena of activity. And um, right. and so, right, it's in the context of this, it's in the context of this arena that all my human actions now uh, take on a particular moral value that they might not have, have had before. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is a, that's a really uh, uh, nice and interesting way of putting uh, the um, the topic, right? That is that it's uh, involved in a um, uh, and uh, involves a marriage as an arena of activity. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> I'm not sure that's always. The, I mean, actually, there could be some connotations there that are kind of uh, funny and amusing, like, <laughs> you know, like, or sort of ironically so. I mean, I think when I the first thing I think of when I hear the word arena is like you know. Christians being tortured, but the, oh. um, you know, so, that's not obviously what he means, but it, maybe there could be a sense in which there is, of course, an appropriate ascesis in, in, uh, in marriage, right? Um, uh, a, pro a proper kind of spiritual combat, hopefully not between you and your spouse, right? Uh, uh, but on behalf, <laughs> right, of uh, your spouse and your children. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's important. Uh, I, I know <clears throat> in my own teaching, which doesn't very much involve John Paul II directly, but um, I know when I lots of times when I've been able to to make some of the better connections with students on some of these topics, it's because I can highlight the way in which moral concepts are exemplified in particular context of action. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think I can see why that that would be uh, uh, attractive. What is that? What is you know focusing on it in that way? Um, how does that that help John Paul II sort of bring out really kind of the essence of marriage, the essence of sexuality, uh, that sort of thing. Right. So 
so here, John Paul II is, um, he affirms something in Immanuel Kant, right, which, um, so he, he does. You want to say with Kant. great fear and trepidation, but anyway, it's good. Yeah, yeah, he does, he does actually credit Kant with certain insights. And um, one thing that he ascribes to Immanuel Kant is uh, what he calls the personalistic norm. Mm -hmm. right? So this is the idea that a human being uh, can never be treated as a mere object, mm -hmm. right? Um, but always must be treated as a subject, right? So the human beings for John Paul II have an existence, right, which is um, which is to be valued for its own sake. And when I engage another human being, uh, so most of all, then, when I engage um, a person to whom I'm particularly responsible, right, I have to engage this other person uh, as a for his own sake uh, value, right? So, um, so in my conduct, right, for uh, in my conduct toward spouse, right, the idea of the idea of turning to my spouse as something to be used um, for my own sort of satisfaction or uh, personal fulfillment, right? Right, right is for John Paul II offensive, right? Um, and what's interesting, right, is that no one can deny that um, obviously there is satisfaction to be found, right? There is personal fulfillment to be found in the context of uh, marriage and family life, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons that people originally are attracted to it. But what John Paul II is concerned about, really, is the um, the reduction of the relationship, right, to uh, an opportunity to satisfy my own wants and desires. Mm -hmm. Instead, the instead the duty to the other is the primary um, the primary orientation of the spouse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Gotcha. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, obviously that. That implies, right, that certain ways of acting in marriage, certain ways of acting just generally in sexuality, um, acting sexually, um, would be um, inappropriate, would be unethical, even if voluntary. That's right. Right. I think that's, that's yep. important. Is that, I mean, that, that's correct, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that cuts strongly against because I think you know, uh, as you well know, I, I have some objections, worries about uh, personalism and a personalistic norm. But I mean, one thing I think you can say that distinguishes, say, secular ideas, or maybe maybe not secular is not even the right word, but um, kind of um, kind of morally decadent ideas about human dignity, because often people will will espouse human dignity. And say that in virtue of human dignity, we should let people do whatever they want voluntarily sexually because of their own personal autonomy. Um, that's not what John Paul II is talking about, right? Right. Um, he would see that as actually offensive to human dignity. Right. Right. So it's interesting. I would like to see actually a John Paul II person and a uh, a uh, a secularist who both affirm human dignity square off on these topics uh, directly because it'd be interesting to see the unpacking of of how. The differing interpretations of dignity, especially vis-a-vis -vis, um, 
voluntary sexual activity. So on the one hand, sort of a, a secularist, right, um, who espouses human dignity might say, well, look, I want, I respect human dignity, and that's why I want people to have the right to completely determine for themselves the meaning and value of sexual acts, right? That would be not John Paul II's position, right? Right. right. Whereas right. John Paul II wants to say, actually, human dignity requires uh, recognizing uh, that that's that not just because the, just because it's voluntary doesn't mean that it's respectful. Right. In fact, what makes it morally um, what makes it morally uh, significant, right, is the fact that it does fall under it does actually fall under the um, the faculty, right, of of free will. Mm -hmm. That there are, um, in other words, that you this is an area where people choose, mm -hmm. right? And um, I mean, it wouldn't be morally significant if it was just kind of like growing, right? Where you sure. it wasn't a matter of choice. You just uh -huh. You just grew, right? Right, right. Um, but it, but it is a matter of choice, right? We actually, we may, we we, we perform acts, mm -hmm. and um, and the performance of the act in right it, it involves the, the free ascent of the will to what's mm -hmm. known, mm -hmm. and um, but right, but the I think one of the the problems in contemporary secular thought regarding the idea of freedom, right, is that is that freedom involves the wants. It prioritizes wants, uh, and does not really distinguish, right, between wants mm. and between what's wanted and what's willed, or at least it sees it sees a defect in the will that does not in the will that doesn't will what's wanted. Do, do you understand what I'm? What I'm saying there? I do, although I think plenty of humanists would sort of say, well, you know, there might be times where you want something and you don't will it, and that's fine. Like, say, if you're trying to, you know, lose weight. Yeah. Or help, the, or help the environment, right? Like, I uh, want to use these plastic bottles, but I'm not going to because I want to be uh, globally and environmentally responsible. Yeah, that's interesting. But somehow it doesn't apply. Um, it doesn't seem to apply in uh, in this particular arena in uh, secular thought. Sure. Um, and that I, maybe that's a giant inconsistency mm -hmm. uh, in secular thinking, right? But right. but as you know, as you know, um, people will people will um, uh, they see right as a almost as a virtue, right? A liberty in this particular area of conduct mm -hmm. uh, and they see themselves as somehow better for being as they think of it more free mm -hmm. uh, whereas John Paul II would probably look at their actions and say well I, I don't find freedom here right I, what I find sure. is at best an abuse of freedom and really a diminishment of it uh -huh. um, and you know in, in the gospel sense right an enslavement mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that that um, that sort of conceptualizing that way is made uh, especially clear uh, in the light of sort of a well-formed uh, moral theology. So one of the things that seems to me, specifically moral theology, right? Uh -huh. uh, one of the things that I think you know, John Paul II was particularly engaged with. You know, I mean, when you think about his great encyclicals, 
you know, uh, as a philosopher, of course, I, I, I tend to gravitate toward, uh, towards fetus at ratio, but, uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, right there equal to, or, or better, right. would be, um, Veritatis Splendor, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which deeply engages topics in moral uh, philosophy, but also moral uh, theology, uh, ones that we're still struggling with today. Uh, but one of the things that really comes across strongly, I think, in John Paul II's writings, uh, both before he was Pope and when he became uh, Pope, um, is uh, his concern to clarify many of the basic concepts of moral theology and apply moral theology, right? Like systematic, well thought out, rigorous, um, you know, high level moral theology to practical actions um, uh, that really, you know, uh, so speaking from my own perspective, my own kind of background, <clears throat> theological wisdom, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is actually, right, in John Paul II's approach, essential and I would even say directive and ruling right in the way that we think about moral acts um what do you think about that yeah I think that's absolutely right so John Paul II was very clear right that there are um there are absolute moral norms Mm -hmm. right and um you know, so he was very interested in trying to discover the anatomy of those norms, right? Sure. But um, but he didn't question actually whether there were such things. Okay. And yeah. um, and the um, so he was very clear, right, that there we can speak of acts which are intrinsically evil, and right. therefore always uh, never to be done, right? No, no, no wait, the, wait, 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 you mean never, like as in like like. You mean like most of the time not to be done, except when the circumstances are really difficult or unclear, right? Uh, no. So never, never, right? In the sense of under <laughs> under no conditions at any time. So this isn't conditional one. at all. What's that? This isn't conditional at all. No, no it's not conditional. Um, so, you know, to remember, right, that John Paul II is a... <laughs> He's he's a he's a very um, I mean, he's a moral philosopher. Right. So he's not ignorant of the fact that imputing personal culpability is a separate question. Right. Sure. From determining whether an act is objectively um, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that distinction is critical in his thought. Right. Because the. Um, for him, right, the, the discussion about whether a person can be imputed with an evil action or not mm-hmm. isn't even really meaningful until we first discern, discern whether the act is uh, good or bad in itself. So so he would disagree with the view, right, say that um, – let's see here um, – you know, let's say that, that, that one was, was cheating on his wife, right, mm-hmm. uh, that one was in adultery. Or or let's say take it a little slightly different uh, angle. Let's just say um, a relationship of habitual fornication. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's say that someone was – I don't believe what I'm about to say here. just want to preface this. But let's just say I I articulated this view that, Rich, while you're you're right in general, and John Paul II, you're right in general that, you know, habitual fornication is wrong. Um, Under some circumstances, given certain habits, certain relationships, certain experiences – 
Um, actually, uh, um, a relationship of habitual fornication can be something that is expressive of authentic and genuine love, an occasion of virtue and uh, friendship, uh, and that, it, in fact, to stop the fornication might actually deprive one of these real or these real goods, uh, such that in a given set of circumstances, even though the general norm is correct, in this given set of circumstances, um, a relationship of habitual fornication can actually be an act, uh, can actually be uh, an instance of authentic friendship and virtue. How would you respond to that? How would John Paul II respond to that? Yeah, so I would say in an absolutely unqualified way, John Paul II would reject that thesis. Uh, and he would say that... Um, he would say that what we have um, what we have here, right, is that the conscience uh, has been disordered, okay. right, uh, through the through this habitual action, right. Mm -hmm. So that now what's seen uh, as good, right, what what's evil is now seen as good, and what right. is good is now seen as evil, right. Right. So this is a very bad place for a person to find himself in. He, he actually addresses this issue in uh, Veritatis Splendor. OK. Right. In which he says that, you know, some people will argue that the force of the force of habit, you know, sort of pushes us in a particular direction or the strength of temptations. And again, leaving aside the question of um, the question of whether, say, a person's will is overwhelmed Right. By passion. Right. So this. Right. So that, that's a separate issue. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is um, that I'm making actual judgments. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm making moral judgments here. Right. Right. Uh, and saying that these in my moral judgment, this action is good or somehow permissible. And he says that this really just shows uh, how serious, right, the, how serious the sin is in this particular mm. case. It compounds, it represents a compounding of the, uh, of the culpability, right, for the actions which led up to this particular point. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, uh, that's, <laughs> that is, uh, of course, uh, to me, um, I would say rationally evident, logically consistent, right? Uh, uh, but also certainly, um, I think, out of step, right, with a lot of uh, currents of contemporary thought, both within the church and outside the church. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth noting here that you, that John Paul II seems to think there's nothing wrong with deductively applying a universal moral norm to a particular set of circumstances i would go further i would say not only is there nothing wrong with it right but the very the very fact okay of it being a universal uh moral norm right, right? right. um it, it requires that we apply it to particular right. cases yeah. right so you know of course that means um how we apply it to particular cases might uh, might require some some working out, particularly sure. particularly at the point of uh, number one intersection with the question of personal culpability. But again, for John Paul II, that's a distinct question, right? Mm -hmm. But number two, um, general principles of action, right? Sure, uh, are 
in and of themselves sort of abstractions, right? Which, right. which like concrete substances, right, only exist. So like the form, right, of dog isn't just walking around; it exists in this particular dog, right? Right, which has its its own particular shape and size. And um, and this is this is true too, you know, with these general moral principles, but. If we're under, if we're being honest about what the general moral principle is, right, then we we can see that um, we actually deviate from it by trying to make it do certain kinds of things, right? So in the example that you were giving, mm-hmm. um, what I, I guess my question would be, okay, so if we're going to, if the argument is we can't just apply a universal moral norm to the particular case, I would ask. What universal moral norm is it here that we're um, right? So what what is the I have to turn the table back, right? What what is this universal moral norm in this case that can't be applied in this particular instance? Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, that would be really interesting and fruitful to explore that further, and and maybe we can we can talk about that in another episode. It'd be really interesting to hear what someone who has this view would say back. Right. Right. I think, you know, I I think currently one of the streams that we're seeing in contemporary Catholic thought. um, I'm not sure exactly the label to put on it, but I'm I'm tempted to to call it a a sort of uh, neo nominalism Uh uh, in which actions are so particular that that universal norms are never fully applicable. and that there's there's sort of a, a cat not just a not just a distance between the universal and the particular but an insurmountable chasm um and that seems to me to be um very problematic in yeah. terms of ethical evaluation whatever perspective you're coming right from. yeah no i think i i might so you said neo-nominalism I, I think i would call it um moral nominalism yeah moral nominalism that's probably good yeah. right and I think that's probably right, right? Because it's kind of like um, so to un- to understand, right? The um, the idea of nominalism, mm-hmm. um, you know, we so the nominalist will use terms like uh, animal, right? Sure. Um, but he doesn't really think that there is any sort of ontological. Mm-hmm correlate to that right Right, there's no no structure right to the universe such Mm -hmm. that some things are animals and others not but these are just terms that we use to sort of categorize um particular things right Right. and we use um more refined terms to categorize things even further so now i'm talking about you know a squirrel rather than just an animal in general but even Mm -hmm. there squirrels are just a bunch of particulars Right, right. Right. So um, what is it that we're really talking about? Well, we're talking about this individual and that individual and that individual, right? And really, the concept of squirrel, the, the idea of the form of a squirrel, right, is, is just a um, – it's just a construct, right? Just a mental yeah. construct that helps us to, to categorize things. But we shouldn't yeah. ask more precision from that uh, construct – than it can provide Mm -hmm. and so right here the in contemporary moral thought right this moral nominalist would think about these universal moral norms in the same way they're not really universal moral norms they're not it's not a 
a structure of the universe. Right. And therefore, right. therefore, he's denying, right? He's he's clearly denying the idea of natural moral law. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I think it's very, very uh, well put when uh, and good to distinguish it as moral nominalism, uh, because, um, you know, when I when I discuss nominalism, it's a uh, the medieval philosophy course that's that's going out right now and other contexts. One of the things I, I emphasize is, is the question of whether or not there is anything universal or permanent within the structure of the changing world, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, with a, within a, um, a Thomist or a broadly Christian uh, perspective, um, certainly a classical perspective, one would want to say, right, that, that there are some permanent and universal features to the reality in which we live, right? Um, and, that, and that nominalism sort of uh, ends up ignoring those things. Well, um, uh, Rich, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of the, the legacy and insights of John Paul II. Would you want to offer any sort of, you know, last, um, maybe like one, or like what would you say is like sort of the heart of John Paul II's legacy in, um, in matters, in theology relating to marriage and the family? Yeah, so again, I think um, he would build it on this idea of the universal, uh, the universal moral norm, uh, which for him, remember, right, involves the personalistic norm. Sure. Uh, and so, right, the orientation and the way the way we tend to think about matters of human sexuality, marriage today, uh, it really is a commoditization, right, of of these particular goods. And people may choose them or not choose them. People might um, sort of uh, construct them in any way that happens to suit their particular needs, where their needs happen to coincide with those of another, right? Right. But the idea that um, the idea that um, what what contemporary society seems to reject is something that John Paul II would um, would affirm as non-negotiable, right? Namely that. Uh, Human beings are called to undertake a turn, right, in which they leave the mereness of themselves behind, and they uh, and they embrace the um, the common good, right, the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that they don't they can't. How can I put this? Um, they don't retain what it is they left behind, right. Uh, in, in the sense that uh, they don't have a right to sort of withdraw from uh, from this particular relationship once it's formed, just as God doesn't withdraw from his relationship with the church, right, once he forms it. Right. Gotcha. Well, I think that's an important insight uh, and one certainly that our uh, culture would do well to wake up to and that we would all do well to uh, adopt and uh, think about. Rich, thanks for your time. Um and your expertise in sharing this uh, with us. Um, uh, we're going to uh, wrap up now. Um, if you want to, um, uh, to to explore this further, you know we have plenty of uh, content that's related to marriage and the family and John Paul II uh, on our website. Uh, please do, um, if you benefit from these things, please do uh, subscribe to our channel on YouTube uh, and also uh, share our content with others on uh, Facebook. Uh, until next time, God bless.